Okay, folks, we are back live. Sorry, we've had uh, just some challenges around here. I don't know if it's our internet connection or whatever. So we're going to try again. We're going to keep rolling. So I talked about the park illustration. We recapped some of the last two weeks. And this morning, we are going to be navigating a conversation in and around grief. All right. So we're going to that's that's a big one. So if you've got your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to first uh, to first Thessalonians chapter four. All right. So as we navigate this conversation around grief, we're headed to first Thessalonians chapter four. Uh, we're going to have four stops kind of in the message guide posts as we do this. Uh, and if we keep losing connection for any reason, we will be able to just simply record the message and then upload it to our Vimeo and send it out through that way if we're having issues. Okay. So just to let you know that we'll keep rolling there um, and we'll make sure that the whole community is connected. All right, so here we are, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We still good? We're good? Cool, just making sure. All right, so 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to have four stops for us. Here we go, beginning in verse 13. It says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of humankind who have no hope. Now, as we camp here, we see our word grief there. All right, so in the Greek, simply the word lupeo, and the grief is simply the feeling in our body when our life has hurt us, when life has hurt us, and our soul is attempting to self-heal. So there's the grieving. And the church at Thessalonica was grieving deeply. So let's just kind of camp what's happening in the time, and then we're going to bring that to bear to our time as well. So we see that brothers and sisters are found sleeping in death, and Paul tells them, you do not grieve like the rest of humankind who have no hope. Now, here's the predicament for the early church there in Thessalonica. Two big things. First is that the early Christians thought Jesus was going to come back again quickly. So if you're familiar with the life of Jesus, he goes on his earthly ministry, he dies and gives himself away on the cross, he raises from the grave on the third day, he sticks around roughly 40 days, appearing on occasions to his disciples, and then all of a sudden he ascends back into heaven. And he told them that he would come back at a future time. We don't know when, and they didn't know when, but they began to think that Jesus was coming back rather quickly. However, a year passes, another year, then a decade, and then another decade. And Christians begin to go, uh-oh, like what's, what's happening? When is Jesus coming back? He has not yet shown up to usher in the fullness of his kingdom. And so that began to give them a bit of doubt, like is Jesus ever showing up again? And then on top of that, they begin to lose lo uh, loved ones that they would lose in death, which is common to many of us that we have lost close family members. But at this time, because they're thinking Jesus is coming again, this became a mini crisis of faith. Like people are dying, they're sleeping in death, to use Paul's language here, um, and they're not sure what to make of it. A second predicament, maybe that made it that much harder, was that there were major persecutions of the church. Uh, the Roman Emperor Nero, who reigned from 54 to 68 AD, is still widely known as the most violent, uh, insecure, and intolerant of views and practices towards the early church. And his greatest wave of persecutions was actually set off in Rome in the year 64 because there was this massive fire uh, in Rome that, that killed a lot of people, that damaged a lot of stuff. And guess what Nero did? He pinned it on the Christians and began to try to round up Christians and burn them, right? You 
You burdened our city, we'll burn you. He threw many of them to wild beasts. There were tons of forms of gruesome deaths in the early church. Now, scholars are unsure. That was in Rome. Thessalonica is not Rome. Uh, but they're unsure of what persecutions start to trickle out. Uh, but we meet a church that is clearly hurting because people are both dying of natural causes and then also getting killed because of their faith in Jesus. And all of a sudden, they start to become dismayed. And so Paul is wanting to encourage them and short, sort of shape and form how they're going to engage their grief. He first acknowledges that Christians can and should grieve, and yet their grieving should look a little bit different. It should be filled with hope. So here's our first stop on our discussion of grief this morning. It's simply that in our mostly post-Christian, secularized culture, we are ill-equipped to grieve. We're ill-equipped to grieve. In Tim Keller's great work, it's called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Uh, as a part of that work, Keller works through numerous world religions and philosophies and how they uh, deal with suffering. And he asserts that of all the world views, of all the philosophies that, that he could kind of see in these broad strokes, secularism actually offers the least support for grief. Why? Because the primary reason is that the absence of handling grief, if there is no God, if the world is a kind of an accident, if it's all there is, if it's a product of random chance and time and the collision of various atoms, if all people are left to find and create their own meanings and purposes, then the outworking of that pain and suffering is actually stripped of any meaning. In a secular worldview, the primary purpose of life becomes live a long life, try to help others live a long life, and try to enjoy yourself kind of as best you can, right? It's essentially boiled down to some form of hedonism where you just try to do the best with what you got. Now, this may not be true for all secular worldviews, but this is the broad stroke. And instead, with that, um, the big challenge in that space is that it actually says, look, pain is now just simply a challenge. Uh, John Mark Comer says it this way, that if this is our overarching view, pain and suffering is at best an interruption to the purpose of life, if not a permanent obstruction due to loss and disease and death. Maybe another work on this that's really helpful is from Dr. Kate Bowler. She's a historian from the uh, religion at Duke, and she was diagnosed with terminal cancer at the age of 35 in 2018, so uncurable terminal cancer. Now, she's still alive and still working through it, uh, but at some point, you know, according to the doctors, it's uncurable and it's going to take her life at some point. But back at her diagnosis a couple years ago, she was also had a newborn child, and she wrote in this season of immense uncertainty a memoir called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I Loved. <laughs> I love that title. Uh, and just a month or so ago, she was interviewed by the New York Times. And she said many things, but one of the things that stuck out to me is she states, the idea that we're all supposed to be positive all the time has become an American obsession. It gives us momentum and purpose to feel like the best is yet to come. But the problem is when it becomes a kind of poison in which it expects that people who are suffering, which, you know, again, in COVID-19 stuff is, is everyone to some degree, that we are somehow always supposed to find the silver lining or not supposed to speak realistically about the circumstances. The main problem is that it adds shame to the suffering by just requiring everyone to be prescriptively joyful. 
You begin to experience shame if you say, I'm actually not feeling happy. I'm actually having some challenges personally. This view of, of you know, kind of abrasive or, or penetrating positivism says, no, 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 you can't say that or believe that. And so you begin to feel shameful for saying, this is where I'm actually at. Similarly, I want to even just acknowledge in the spiritual realm of things or or in the local church, spiritual families, often there can be this cultural infusion that we're supposed to have it all together, right? Like Christians can't be sad. We're supposed to be the ones that are happy. There's this happy-go-lucky persona that is supposed to be on display. And what I want to clear up in that, so there's both like the secularism and then the way that inseeps itself at times into the church, I want to say something has been lost here. And I actually believe, again, alongside Keller and many others, that uh, the Judeo-Christian framework gives the greatest supports for grieving, that something has been lost and it actually must be recovered, which is uh, the season or the experience of lament, even the practice of lament. Let me be brief here, but the longest book in the Bible is the book of Psalms. Now, the book of Psalms is not really a book. It's actually a collection of many songs called song, Psalms, right? They are prayers and liturgy of the ancient Hebrews that have been drawn upon for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, actually, now it's, it's thousands of years, right? 2,000 years since the life of Jesus. And so long before that, the people of God were drawing upon there. Out of 150 Psalms that are found there, roughly two-thirds, so roughly 100 Psalms, the largest overarching theme that's found in them, grief. Lament, anguish. Uh, Psalm after psalm, there are these painful statements like this one, which is one of the most famous. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's Psalm 22, verse 1. And Jesus actually quoted this when he gave his life, when he willingly gave his life, when he knew he was going to give his life. Guess what? On the cross, one of his last dying words was filled with the pain and anguish of going through with what he knew he actually even desired to go through with. So anguish and lament is deeply Christian. Another great book along these lines is the book of Lamentations. Uh, It's only five chapters long, and it is gut-wrenching pain with little to no answers. You see, the book of Lamentations was written after the fall of Jerusalem, after the destruction of the temple in 586 BC. So think of it this way. As you and I stream together right now, think about this in the U.S. Who thinks right now in the next five, 10 years, maybe even 100 years, who thinks the U.S. is going to get overthrown, run over by a foreign power, and subjugated? Yeah, most of us probably don't think that, right? Like most Americans right now live their lives with this aura of invincibility. It's hard to conceive of us having never existed, which, by the way, there was a time when the U.S. was not a country, right? Uh, And it seems like it's going to endure forevermore, which is, again, most likely untrue, an illusion. And yet we live with this aura of invincibility. Let me tell you, the Jewish people in Judea, in Judah, and in Jerusalem specifically lived with this aura of invincibility. The temple was at the epicenter of that invincibility, and all of a sudden, it was crushed. It was crushed by the Babylonians, and thousands of people were taken into exile. Homes were ruined. Women and children were violated. The people of Israel's national identity was in complete chaos, destruction, and crisis, and lamentations is the gut-wrenching, emotion-filled reflection upon such a catastrophe. 
And let me tell you, in these five chapters, there's not a lot of hope and there's not a lot of answers. Listen to even the last words of the book of Lamentations. It says in chapter 5, verse 19, You, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. That's like the highest statement in the whole book of of hope. Verse 20, why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us for so long? Right back into dismay. Verse 21, restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old. Listen to this, the last statement. Unless you've utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond like the last lines are, is this just, we don't know. What if God has judged us so strongly he'll never invite us back in? It leaves hanging. And this is lament. It's this crying out when we don't have the answers. And there's some deep healthiness in doing that. And so pause number two on our journey of grieving together is we need to go back to Paul's opening statement in 1 Thessalonians, uh, in in chapter 4, verse 13, and recognize that Christians can and should and do grieve. This is good. And if we want to be healthy apprentices, healthy followers of Jesus, we must enter into the invitation to work through our grief rather than bury it or try to run from it. We've got to actually work through our grief rather than bury or rather than run. Now, the leading work uh, kind of on grief uh, is from Dr. Kubler-Ross, who presented the popularized stage model of grief, identifying five stages of grief, all right? And these stages are here, anger, denial, bargaining, sadness or depression, and acceptance. Now, here's a COVID-19 practice with this, all right? Here we go. So anger is something like, how dare the government quarantine us? I want my autonomy, right? Lots of us might have felt that, especially in the opening days of like, wait a minute, you can do that? Like, what's going on here? There can be this rash of anger, right? That's part of the grieving process. Maybe denial. Ah, what's the big deal? It's just like the flu. Like, this thing isn't that big of a deal, right? We're getting overblown. Well, we're making, some of us are making those statements early on. It's like, ooh, uh, that's not exactly true, right? So there can be this denial posture as a part of grieving. Another stage oftentimes is bargaining. Well, if we just quarantine 10 more days and if everybody buys in, we'll be all done. We'll wipe our hands and we'll move on with light, right? You start to bargain. Like if I give you 10 days of quarantine, everything will, uh, you know, shape up. And yet if you've listened to some of the words of even the leading health officials of the CDC is, hey, look, there there very well could be in the fall and winter an even stronger onslaught of COVID-19. We don't know. They don't know. But when leading health officials are saying things like that, we've at minimum got to go, uh-oh, we might not get to just bargain our way out of this thing, right? Another aspect of grieving is sadness. I really miss seeing my friends and family, right? We just start to come to the place to say, I miss that. I'm sad on behalf of the now 30 million Americans who are filing for unemployment, right? There's just sadness amidst that. And then finally, there's, there's a move towards acceptance. We're beginning to enter a new norm. <laughs> and we don't exactly know what that means going forward. We start to believe and understand COVID-19 is shaking the world in some pretty powerful ways, and we try to learn to re-navigate whatever a new norm even means. Now, many of us might think these stages uh, are linear, 
And uh, that's not the case. Again, in our Western mindset, we like to go, okay, 0.1, 0.2, 0.3, 0.4, 0.5. Great. I figured it all out. I've worked through my stuff. Really, what you should do right now, if you've got a piece of paper, some of us like to take notes in this, man, draw a big old like scruble bird's nest on your paper. And that's much more like grieving. Oftentimes we start in anger and then we jump to denial and then we go to bargaining and then we go back to anger and then we start to get some sadness and then we're back into something else, right? It can feel like this very chaotic bird's nest sort of feeling like, why am I still in this place? I thought I had worked through something, but all of a sudden I, I received this onslaught of grief and I'm back and around and in and through the process. And this can be very disorienting. One of the realities of grief is that it's very disorienting at times. It's very messy, and it's easy to reach a posture where we find ourselves thinking like, you know, buck up, get over it, move on. We might even have heard that from others, people who, who truly care and want us to be able to move towards healing. It's like, you just got to get over that. It's very tempting to try to stuff our stuff, to try to run from our stuff. But I want to encourage us that that actually comes with a great cost. Maybe a few words, again, from, from some leading people in the marriage family therapy world gurus on grief and trauma and sadness. Uh, I really appreciate the statement from Terry Collins, an MFT out in the Portland area. She says this, the suffering increases, it increases when our pain is not acknowledged and we feel alone in our pain. When you and I choose to stuff our pain or run away from our pain, the truth is we're actually unsuccessful at accomplishing what we're hoping to accomplish, which is like, I don't want to hurt anymore, right? That, that we're, we're not getting somewhere. When we allow ourselves or we allow others to tell us, just buck up, that's not that big of a deal, we're not actually moving forward, even if it feels like we are in the moment. We instead need to voice and recognize, I'm experiencing pain here. Here's my source of some suffering. As we name that, we're moving through grief rather than pretending it's not there. Again, the early church in, in Thessalonica was losing loved ones. And some of them were brutally tortured and killed. Like these are really traumatic events. And so I want to pause just to simply say, you know, where do you need to acknowledge some pain in your life? Whether it's past pain or whether it's present. Because oftentimes, our grief is tied to some traumatic event. Now, I'm not going to unpack trauma very much. I feel ill-equipped to do so. And so I, I, I uh, did some thinking and research and even talking with different people. I just don't feel uh, like I'm ready to really unpack trauma to a great degree. But, but what I will say, one thing is a fascinating aspect of trauma is oftentimes the pain that we continue to experience from the event that actually happened are many of the thoughts that we attach to that experience. So yes, the event in itself produces some trauma, but then we continue to have pain with the way we think about and interpret that event. Here are the words from David Tackle in his work, The Truth About Lies. He says it this way, most of the pain that we can still feel from traumatic events comes not from the experience themselves, but the ways we have interpreted the experience. Beliefs that tell us terrible things about ourselves, about who God is, and what we can expect from life and others. Those lies are the real source of bondage because we believe them deeply and live as if they were true. Our early experiences become a container for the lie, but the experience itself is not the main cause of the present pain and malformation. The lies are the real source of our stress. 
Those are fascinating words that oftentimes we hang on to lies or our interpretations of the traumatic event begin to continue to press in on us day and month and even year after year. When reflecting upon our past trauma, we need to begin to examine our thoughts. Instead of judging our emotions, we begin to explore our interpretations and our thoughts attached to, to those events. So let me just share a few things of grieving to just try to model. And yes, we will keep going in this passage. I know we've only unpacked one verse. We will keep going, but we need to camp here. Because over the last six weeks, I have been grieving some things. You know, I grieve things as silly as it may sound to you is that, man, over the last few Fridays, I would have been playing some wiffle ball with some awesome dudes. uh, And I love that season of getting to play wiffle ball, of the bratwurst, of seeing our kids play in and around our game. I miss that. I've had to grieve not getting to do that to see a season canceled and and to have to move on. I have grieved again, as silly as this might sound to you, for six years, ever since I came out to Kansas City, uh, the Dodgers, I've only gotten to see them play live twice, actually. Yes, once in St. Louis, once in the World Series. And here's the crazy thing. They were coming in three more weeks to Kansas City. All right, the Dodgers in Kansas City only play once every three years. Three years ago is in LA. And I'm telling you, I kid you not, for high five and a half years since we moved to Kansas City, I've been waiting for the Dodgers to play here in Kansas City. And that has been stripped. Yes, go ahead and laugh. You can laugh, but I have grieved in and around that. Way more seriously, I've grieved the fact that, you know, for Chris and I, we haven't got to see her mother-in-law and father-in-law over the last six weeks. And our life is better in and around them. Like Maris, her mom has an amazing impact and influence on our children. Our marriage is healthier. Our family life is healthier. They love spending time with both Yaya and Pops. And I've been grieving like that's been absent. And sure, hopefully we're a week or two-ish away, maybe three weeks away from a visit or so. Uh, But man, we've been grieving that loss. And in my family of origin reflections, I've grieved much larger things than just what's been happening over the last six weeks. One of the great earthquake moments, we we gave this assignment last week, is in our genogram to explore some earthquake moments. And one of those for me was in sixth grade going into junior high. We never moved all my life growing up, which was great. However, there was deep social instability when I moved from an elementary school that fed into a different junior high than the junior high that I went to. And so all of a sudden, I lost every single school friend I had in the matter of weeks. And all of a sudden, I showed up as an insecure seventh grader, and I knew two people at the whole school, actually a third. But it was really hard for me. I didn't know how to navigate that. It was a painful uh, social experience. It was an earthquake for me. And so grieving is when we start to name what are these sources of pain and hurt in us. And the good news is that Paul aids and points those believers at Thessalonica and can aid us as well on how we are to grieve. Verse 14, back in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 14 says this, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Paul speaks right to their circumstance. What was causing them to grieve and dismay and lose hope is that people were dying, getting even persecuted, and they didn't know what was going to happen to them. Paul says, look, we believe in a Jesus who died and yet rose again. This is the source of hope. It's likely that verse 14 here was even an early creed, meaning it was often sung out in worship environments environments in local churches. Um, and, and bottom line is what happened to Jesus. We believe that when you place your faith, your hope, your trust in him, that he too, that there is a day when we will rise again to be with God. He then goes on to clear up this confusion. They thought Jesus was coming quickly. And he says, look, in verse 15, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, we who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Your loved ones will rise, Paul says. Verse 17. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Paul teaches them there and hear us as well, that grieving is actually needed, that it is messy, right? He says you should grieve, just not as those without hope. There are these eternal truths that can meet us and orient us as we grieve and infuse it with the essential work of hope. So here's pause number three for us. It's that we are a resurrection people, and our hope is rooted in the person, in the presence, and in the power of a risen Jesus. And yes, I know it's not Easter Sunday. I know it's not even the same month as Easter. Uh, and, and that's important because oftentimes we'll, uh, you know, especially in, in many Christian environments or spiritual families, it's like you minimize the Easter to one Sunday a year where you talk about it. It's like, no, no, no. We're supposed to be a resurrection people. And, and the writers of scripture are regularly pointing us to the resurrection, not as a one Sunday thing, but as a regular reflection of our lives. We don't want to compartmentalize that. We want to lean into it. And it also gives us the freedom to say, you know what? I'm really sad right now. Like I'm chewing on this stuff and I don't have all the answers and I, I feel uncertain with it and, and I'm hurting in my circumstances right now. And yet, boy, like there's this resurrection hope that reorients how I navigate these loss of expectations, these hurts, these pains, these real wounds in my life. Like hold up. Something is breaking into that. Like the story of Easter is that Jesus rose from the dead and that, that his resurrection then, his resurrection power begins to open up in the here and now. And then it comes into fullest fruition when Jesus comes a second time. That's when Paul says, look, like that's going to happen. And all of the hurts and the hangups, God will start to right all the wrongs. Because the thing about hope is that hope generally isn't actually helpful. It's too detached. Hope actually has to have an object for it to be meaningful, right? If you attach your hope to winning the lotto, well, <laughs> good luck with that. You know, most are not going to do that. And trust me, there are so countless broken stories of people spending way too much money hoping to win the lotto and never doing so, right? Hope has to have an object that is worth trusting. And Paul is saying the hope of any believer is that 
the story is never ended. No matter what the circumstances here and now, there is a hope that can break into the circumstances. And so the gospel, the good news of Jesus, uh, I love Terry Collins' framework for this statement. She says this, when we feel alone in our pain and our suffering, remember that actually increases our pain. If you stuff your grief, if you run away from it, if nobody knows you in your pain, your suffering will increase. But she says this, that God promises that we are never alone in our pain, and God offers presence, and Jesus offers empathy. That is great news. And Jesus said this, there's so many passages we could draw upon, but Jesus even told his followers in one of the last statements he gave to them, known as the Great Commission, this commission to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, something that we are very passionate around here at Serve. We believe that if you love Jesus, if you know Jesus, you are supposed to help others follow in his footsteps. You are supposed to become a disciple maker as you learn to become an apprentice first. But in this impossible mission to make disciples of all the people, groups of all the nations, Jesus ends it by saying this, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We put our hope in a resurrected Jesus. We put our hope in a Jesus who says he is with us here and now. We put our hope in the presence of God. We put our hope in a future time. If you check out Revelation 22 and another time, it says that at some point, God even lets us meet with him face to face. He even says that there are trees and that the leaves on those trees are for the healing of the nations, the healing of the people groups of this world. We begin to attach our hope to the person, the presence, the power, and the work of a living God who's breaking into the here and now, and yes, who we must wait for as well. God has not abandoned you, and there is a deep source of hope amidst the grieving, amidst the uncertainties that you can begin to access. And so Paul closes this section, verse 18, simply saying, therefore, encourage each other with these words. Paul encourages them, from the resurrection, from the future coming of Jesus, even though we don't know when that is, he he says, encourage each other with these realities. And so that leads us to our fourth and final pause of the morning, which is just a question. How can you be a dispenser of hope in this season? I love Henry Nouwen, one of the famous Catholic priests. He he, he used this phrase, great writer and thinker. He used this phrase that that believers, that followers of Jesus are wounded healers. That we're wounded healers. That we suffer, that, that we have pain, that we are not arrived in so many ways of our lives. And yet, the calling of Jesus is to become healers even amidst all the ways in which we have not arrived. And in order to do that, we've got to be in tune with some of our brokenness. We have to be in tune with some of our pain and our grief. And we don't have to posture that we have it all together. Instead, we learn to navigate the both and reality of pain and grieving and yet a hope that is breaking into it. Not a positivism, but a hope that is rooted in the person of Jesus. And so, how can you be a hope dispenser in this time? Oftentimes, it's as simple as asking honest questions and becoming a listening ear. So let me offer a few next steps for us as a spiritual family. Can we just kind of lean in together to close our time? The first is I want to keep putting before you your genogram. 
Again, last week we unpacked this family of origin and I really said, man, this is an ongoing process. I found myself spending some time journaling around it and yet not finishing all that I wanted to. So I just want to encourage you, if you're still chewing on that, please keep doing so. Spend some intentional time unpacking your family of origin. And last week's teaching, again, gives us some some uh, inroads on that or, or how to go about that. There's even, again, we'll send it out in our email today as we recap the message. Uh, there's specific worksheet with a few different questions that you can begin to kind of plot your family life, recognize the great things, the, the sinful patterns, and even some of those earthquake moments. Like I shared even just, man, sixth, seventh grade was an earthquake moment. Uh, it was super painful for me. And so we begin to genogram and say, I'm beginning to realize that dot, dot, dot. And we start to fill in that dot, 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 because that's where the awareness comes. And that's where we can start to go on the journey of repatterning. So first, just kind of re-up on last week's challenge. Second, though, I, I want to ask this question. Am I grieving something right now? We're not trying to force something. You, you may not be, and that's great. But am I grieving something right now? And two, if so, What am I grieving right now? So again, we want to try to draw that up to the surface, ask God to draw that up to the surface and begin to, no no stuffing, no running. What am I grieving? And if it's something as silly as missing a wiffle ball season or if it's something more dear to you, like missing out on connection with fellow family members, we start to name those things. Yeah, I'm actually having some challenge with these things. Now, Terry Collins, again, we've just kind of been leaning on some of her work. Uh, She also talks about, again, helpful grieving practices. So these are not like, go do this, this, this. They're not a checklist item, but they're just saying, hey, as God draws stuff to the surface, what are some helpful ways to navigate our grieving? A few of those helpful practices, one is staying connected to fellow relationships, relationships of safety where you trust, man, yeah, yeah, I, I can actually process with them. I don't have to posture. I don't have to pretend. There's probably a few, it's not many, but you have probably a few of those relationships. Hopefully you do. And you want to lean into those. You want to, as you learn new things, go, yeah, like there's an aspect of being received in relationship, being listened to, that is very healing as we grieve. We're leaning into the practice of journaling, right? So so naming these things and even doing so with a pen and paper is really helpful. Another thing is slowing down to meet your emotions. What that means is don't judge what emotions are drawn up as you say, yeah, I am grieving this or, ooh, boy, I'm noticing something new, right? So you slow down to say, man, I'm really confused right now or I'm really angry right now. As I I see this traumatic past event, I'm really angry, right? So you slow down to name and meet your emotions. That's another thing that's helpful in this time. It's very, uh, it's helpful to nurture our thought life. Again, so much of our pain is not just saying, okay, there was something traumatic that happened, but then we start to attach a lot of lies oftentimes from that. We can say, because, uh, I didn't have friends in seventh grade, uh, that, that I'm a terrible person or that I'm a loser or that I'm not worthy or valuable, right? Those sorts of thoughts that go attached to the emotions of, wow, I just lost all my friends and this is really painful and sad. Sure, name those emotions, but look, sometimes we hang on to the thought life and the lies that we've attached to that experience. So nurturing our thought life and going, oh, I'm seeing that I've thought about this way. Maybe that's untrue. Like what's actually true about me? Nurturing our body is key. 
So meaning taking those walks, uh, doing things that, that are just, uh, you know, whether it's massages, whether it's, uh, you know, a practice of Jesus-centered yoga, there's lots of ways that stepping into just nurturing healthy body rhythms, uh, good sleep, those sorts of things are a part of grieving process and making sure that we're not kind of going off the rails into unhealthy practice. And then even finding ways to be generous and helping others, right? The wounded healing reality that, yeah, it's very helpful at times to help other people and to kind of get outside of ourselves all at the same time as we're working through what's challenging. So am I grieving something? What am I grieving right now? And I want to encourage you, maybe that some of those things, as I listed those off, you go, oh yeah, I want to start taking some intentional steps there. I see I need to nurture my body a little better or my thought life, or I need to connect in some relationships. I found myself isolating. Don't do that, right? That's the invitation. Finally, I want to say, what can you do to cultivate hope? Because hope is not actually an emotion per se. Emotions come and go. They can pass through us as we work through them. Uh, that's great. Hope are, is actually something that is, again, rooted to a person in Jesus and is rooted in certain practices that we can begin to cultivate. So one thing I want to encourage our spiritual family to step into this week, uh, if you have interest, simply type in in Google hope in the Bible or a word search on the back of your Bible around hope. There are dozens upon dozens upon dozens of passages that lean us into hope. And one of the best things I can encourage you to do is start to dig into these hope passages. Romans 5 verses 1 through 6 is one of my favorite passages that deal with hope. And there are many, many others like it. So go on the journey. Maybe spend a couple times this week journaling around hope and accessing the scriptures and where they can root our hope in. As a last word for us this morning, when I, we showed that picture uh, from the park, right, as I'm walking Bennett Park and I'm experiencing the joy and also the tension of the moment of nobody being in this park, what was fascinating is along the back wall, you probably can't see it in that picture unless you can use your fingers to zoom in, but fascinatingly enough, one of our neighbors posted three different banners along the uh, back fence. It's their back of their fence of their home and, and the park butts up right against it. And the banners say, faith hope, and love. It's fascinating, and that comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that there are these eternal realities called love, faith, and hope. They are actually virtues, not just emotion. They are actually virtues that can be cultivated, leaned into, and grown. And so we can actually learn to be a people who cultivate hope in the person, in the presence, and in the power of Jesus, all at the same time saying, I don't have to try to arrive. I don't have to apologize for being sad or for grieving. And yet I'm also experiencing the hope of Jesus infiltrating my life. This is the invitation to latch onto, to attach more fully to Jesus as you process whatever you are going through in this time. Let us pray. Thank you for checking into the Serve Community Church podcast. If you're interested in more information on how to connect with our community, feel led to support us in any way you can or have any further questions, please check us out on social medias like Facebook or Instagram or go to our website at servecc.org. God bless and have a great day.